So uh, let's open with a prayer, which is always a good way to start. And I've chosen as our opening prayer the first prayer that we hear at Mass in the new liturgical year. So this is the prayer from the first Sunday of Advent. It's one of what are called the presidential prayers. The presidential prayers are the ones that are prayed by the presider. That's why they're presidential. And there are three of them during the Mass. There's the opening prayer right at the beginning of Mass, which is called the collect, because it collects all of our prayers into one. Then there's the prayer over the gifts, right after, the, right after we place the bread and the wine on the altar. And then finally, after communion, there's the prayer after communion. Those are the three presidential prayers at Mass. I think they're the most beautiful prayers in the whole Mass, and so often we just, we just miss them. And they're, they're really beautiful, and this is one of my favorite ones from the first Sunday of Advent. So let us, let's pray it together. If you, can, if you can't see the screen, this is maybe a good litmus test for that. You may want to move, move closer. I know it's a small screen, but we're a small crowd, so we'll be okay. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Grant your faithful, we pray, Almighty God, the resolve to run forth to meet your Christ with righteous deeds at his coming, so that, gathered at his right hand, they may be worthy to possess the heavenly kingdom. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This particular prayer, all the prayers in the sacramentary have a history, and they came into the church in, from various uh, different early liturgical books. This prayer originated in what was called the Gelasian Sacramentary, which dates from the 7th century. And it's the second oldest of the liturgical books that, that the scholars still know of. So it's a very old prayer. And this is a great one to kind of show us that the, the Mass is filled with scriptural references. And in this one, there are two... Oh, good, my little red light is working. The resolve to run forth to meet your Christ. So this is from uh, the gospel, the story of the... Um, the ten wise virgins and the ten foolish virgins, that the, the virgins who had oil for the lamps came to meet, come running to meet the bridegroom. So in Advent, when there's so, this first Sunday of Advent, where there are so many images of darkness and light, we're reminded of those brides that, that come to meet, the, run to meet the bridegroom with lamps lit. And then also, that's from, and by the way, that's from uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, like our Matthew 25 center, and also for Matthew 25, that, that, so that gathered at his right hand, they may be worthy to possess the heavenly kingdom. The separation of the sheep and the goats, the sheep at God's right, at Jesus' right hand, the goats at his left, and those at the right hand will inherit the kingdom. So embedded right in that prayer are some beautiful scriptural references, and those are all over the place uh, uh, within the presidential prayers and all the prayers of Mass. Okay. Last time I realized, well, of course, last time I had Father Hurley here, so he lent some credibility. And, uh, and so you knew that uh, if I slipped up and said anything heretical, he would jump in and save the day. Tonight, believe it or not, all our priests are gone tonight, so I'm, I'm on my own. So, by the way, we'll need to pray for Father Richard's mother. She had a joint replacement today. I think it was hip. So she had surgery today, so he, could, he was hoping to be here tonight, but he said he probably needed to be with his mom, so he's where he needs to be. But just a little bit of my background, so you have some idea of where I'm coming from with this stuff. 
I grew up in a little German parish, 39 families, all 39 families with German surnames. I kid you not. It's still a parish. It's not, it is consolidated now with, with two other parishes, but it's right out in the middle of the cornfields in uh, just south of Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. But then, I was a seminarian for a couple of years down at St. Meinrad Arch Abbey, which was where I really, I think, started to get some good liturgical formation. My old mentor in Gregorian chant, Father Columba Kelly, just passed away this past summer. A, a worldwide uh, authority on Gregorian chant, especially chant in English. So he had a very big impression on me and, and my musical um, outlook on the Mass. Uh, then I was in the Peace Corps in Haiti for three years. I grew up on a pig farm, so in the Peace Corps I worked with pigs. I was, uh, this, that photo was actually taken by a National Geographic photographer that I was translating for, and I was standing right behind him. That was my partner, uh, uh, in my agro uh, agronomist partner who was uh, teaching about swine husbandry there. So in Haiti, I, I, musically, I attended uh, mass in my parish of St. Rose of Lima in Leogan, in Creole, but I also directed a choir in Port-au-Prince, and we did all kinds of unusual things. Probably the most unusual was we did a mass with choir and orchestra, a mass written by a German-Haitian composer who used voodoo melodies to write this mass. So, there you go. We didn't do it at mass, we did it in concert. But. And then my wife and I spent seven years in Salzburg and Vienna in Austria, where my wife was an opera singer and I taught music in international schools there. And I sang in the Salzburg Cathedral Choir. And then um, also, my wife and I were music directors at this church, the Votivkirche in, in Vienna, uh, where it was always, winter or summer, about 10 degrees cooler in church than outside. So it was very uh, interesting. So finally I ended up where I really belong, and that's at Our Lady Mount Carmel, and been here now for 21 years. But So all those different things from my past, I think, are part of, of, of what I bring to my outlook on the liturgy. And one thing I think I have learned from that sort of international outlook is that there are lots of opinions on liturgy. There are lots of opinions in, on liturgy right in this room. So, but, so I, I have always relied on going back to the primary sources. I go back to the Roman Missal. I go back to the general instruction on the Roman Missal. I go back to the church's documents on the liturgy, and that's where I look for my information. Um, and so far, I think that's been a pretty good... Uh, formula. By the way, an unanswered question from last time. We had signs on the door last time saying the talk is in the nave, and so first question somebody said is, where's the nave? The answer to that question is you're sitting in it. So this part of the church building is the nave, and this is very interesting because it comes from, the name, nave comes from the Latin for the same root that we get navigation and navy and uh, all these nautical terms. So it's, it's uh, a Latin term for a ship. And the ship is an ancient image of the Catholic Church, often called the bark of Peter. And in that case, it's, it's not bark, B-A-R-K, it's B-A-R-Q-U-E, which is a, a boat, a small boat, like Peter's fishing boat. So the church has long had an image as being the boat on which we sail the waters of chaos on our way to heaven. Now, we might be on the right side of the boat, we might consider ourselves kind of conservative, or on the left side of the boat, consider ourselves a little more liberal, but as long as we're on the boat, 
we're on the way, we're on the right track. We just got to be careful not to jump off the boat one way or the other. One of the things, the reason I bring this up with this slide is I think this was an accident, but in our new renovation, does that not look like the prow of a ship to you? I love that when I drive up on 146th Street and I see the, the ship of the church, the bark of Peter. So you're in the nave, you're in the, in the boat of the church every time we come to Mass. Okay, so a quick review of last time, uh, some of the major principles that we talked about, about the liturgy in general and the liturgy of the Word. First of all, the church teaches us that the liturgy, a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of terms kicked around about the liturgy as the work of the people or the liturgy is we need to be active and do this and that. All of those are true, but in the primary documents, this is from a, a church document, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. This was the first document published by the Second Vatican Council, 1963. And it tells us there who is the who's the main liturgist? The liturgy is the action of Christ, head and members. We can't do liturgy ourselves. We, it's the action of Christ, and we, but it's Christ head, Christ the head, and members of the body of Christ which is all of us. The liturgy, the church tells us, is the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed. At the same time, it is the fount from which all the church's power flows. And we talked last time about participation in the liturgy, about what that really means. It does mean standing and sitting and kneeling and speaking and singing. It means all of those things. But most of all, the documents tell us the church earnestly desires that all the faithful be led to a full, conscious, and active participation in liturgical celebrations called for by the very nature of the liturgy. Tonight we'll delve into what is that very nature of the liturgy that we're called to participate in. It's a whole lot more than just standing and sitting and kneeling and singing and reading and taking up a collection. But it is all those things too. And last year, and last week, or last last talk, we talked about this lovely image of what a mystery is. The Eastern Church, uh, what we call in the Latin Church a sacrament, the Eastern Church calls a mystery. It's the same thing. Sacrament equals mystery. And Abbot Jeremy Driscoll, who's a Benedictine abbot in, in the Northwest, he has this lovely uh, definition of a mystery. A mystery is a concrete something that when you bump into it, it puts you in contact with a divine reality. We, in Catholic, we as Catholics don't believe that matter is evil. We don't believe that the body is evil. We believe that all these physical things are holy and that God uses concrete things, water in baptism, oil in baptism, bread and wine, um, all these physical things that we bump into but what makes it a sacrament or a mystery is that it puts us in contact with the divine reality. And we talked about the Mass is, a, there, there's been a lot of debate in liturgical circles over the years. The Mass more of a meal, it's, it's just kind of a communal meal that we celebrate, or is it a sacrifice? Is, which is more important, the liturgy of the Word or the liturgy of the Eucharist? Which is more important, a vertical orientation aiming our praise toward God or a horizontal orientation 
that makes us one as community? The church's answer to all those things is yes. It's both and. It's never either or on those questions. Um, someone was talking to me today about Bishop Robert Barron has a lovely book called um, Something Paradoxes, uh, Radiant Paradoxes or something like that, where he looks at the Catholic Church and all these wonderful both and things that happen. So it's both of those things. Thanks. Yes. The answer to that question is both and. Correct. Correct. And certainly there was an, uh, a, a reorder, and reordering is not the right word, that maybe that, well, architecture of the church is one of the clearest indications of this. Before Vatican II, churches were not built in this, in the round style. Um, that, that uh, there was definitely you know, a sort of a straight line to the altar, all the focus was there, and the focus was all one way and going up. And in the architecture of churches like this that were built so that the people could see each other as well and sort of in, uh, be a community as well. As all those, those pendulum swings go back and forth, and... Um, uh, again, I would say th the correct answer, what Vatican II really envisioned, was both and. It never intended, if you read the documents of Vatican II, they never intended to sort of eliminate or, or uh, de-emphasize the vertical. As a matter of fact, in my copies, the copies of my liturgical books are all filled with annotations and highlights and everything, and one code that I put in there in the margins is um, uh, G and S. Over and over and over and over and over again, the Vatican II documents say that the purpose of the liturgy, the purpose of sacred music, the purpose of prayer, all these things is G and S, the glorification of God, the vertical, and the sanctification of the faithful, the horizontal. And it says this over and over and over again. Interesting, though, it's always in that order, always. God first, and then the sanctification of the faithful. So... Okay. All right. There's an ancient Catholic liturgical principle. In Latin, it's called lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. And basically what that means is lex orandi is the law of prayer, lex credendi is the law of belief, lex vivendi is the law of life, the law of living. And basically what we're saying is the way we pray is both both expresses and shapes the way we believe. And all of that informs and expresses and, and, and motivates the way we live. And if that any of those three of those is missing, then we're kind of missing the point as Catholics. And the words and the actions of the liturgy itself are filled with this. We talked about a lot of these last time that we won't go back over. But the very act of dipping our hand into the baptismal font and making a sign of the cross. You know, we can talk for two hours on that, all the stuff that that means about how we pray, how we believe, and how we live. So, participation at the Mass. Last time we kind of stopped here. The preparation of the altar and the gifts. 
This is the beginning, this is the first act of the liturgy of the Eucharist. Some of this is going to be repetition, but I'll try to get through that part of it pretty quickly. Um, last time we talked about the procession of when the bread and the wine start back there and make their way up the aisle, and people from the congregation are carrying that bread and wine, that's, again, it's not by accident. The actions and words that we do at Mass express what's really going on. What's really going on there is that bread and the wine are coming up right through the midst of y'all on their way to the altar. We talked last, last time about the sanctuary represents what? Heaven. Heaven on earth. That's why it's all bright and white. I've got the lights dim tonight just so you can see the screen. That's why it's paved, the streets are paved with gold mosaics. That's why there's a white marble and uh, lights and uh, precious metals, and, that, and that's why it's raised. It's all going up to heaven, and we'll see a, a ton of that imagery within the liturgy of the Eucharist. I'm so excited about that. So all these prayers, as, this, as these, I talked last night about these, the bread and the wine sort of being like electromagnets that are sucking all of your prayers and your offerings along with it, including monetary offerings. Let's not forget those. That's a big part of what we offer. All of that is coming up and being placed on the altar. And then Father prays this prayer over the bread. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you, fruit of the earth and work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life. This prayer comes from an ancient Jewish prayer called the Barakah, and that there are uh, seven forms of the Barakah that a Jewish family will pray, led by the, the father of the family, before taking part in a meal. One of them is prayed over the bread, and it's very similar to this one. Another one is prayed over the wine that's very similar to the prayer we pray over the wine. So it's kind of uh, Monsignor Duncan always liked, used to say, uh, Catholicism equals Judaism plus Christ. And so that all these roots that we have in our Jewish ancestors, this is one of the places where that comes out in the Mass. So last time we talked about, this is, if you dig into this a little bit, this is kind of funny, because it says that we... Through your goodness, we have received the bread. But we don't receive bread from God. We receive wheat. And we don't offer wheat on the altar. God acts first, gives us something. Then we have to take that wheat and do something to it, using the ingenuity and the creativity that God has given us. We grind the wheat. Each grain of wheat is broken, turned into flour. But then we don't offer flour on the altar either. That's not good enough. God acted, we acted, but then we got to let God act again. God acts on that, on that dough through heat, and then it becomes bread. So that that's the, the dynamic of the whole Mass. God acts, we respond, and then God responds with something even better than we gave back to him, that we don't have any power to, to, to do. Only God can make that response. That same pattern happens with the wine. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the wine we offer you. We don't receive wine from the vineyard. We receive grapes. And then we have to use our human ingenuity to crush those grapes 
and turn them into not wine, we turn them into grape juice. And any seminarian will tell you, if you try to celebrate Mass with grape juice and not wine, it is not a valid Mass. Why not? Because we, we've forgotten the most important step, and that is allowing God to act on that grape juice again in fermentation. So God acts first, God acts last, and we act in the middle. And that's this sort of economy of uh, salvation that's happening at the Mass. Then, Father Hurley last week said this, what's called a secret prayer. There are some, priests, uh, some, some uh, prayers at the Mass that the Missal actually says the priest is to say inaudibly. And this is one of them. I wish it was audible because it's so beautiful and it expresses so much. With humble spirit and contrite heart, may we be accepted by you, O Lord, and may our sacrifice in your sight this day be pleasing to you, Lord God. You know, it's just not I. It's we, our sacrifice, all those things that we sent up with the bread and wine to put on the altar, they're all part of what's, what's being offered. And we also talked a little bit about the incense. This is, again, more proof for what is being offered to God. What gets incensed? Well, the things that are holy and are being offered get incensed. The Missal tells us, tells us that the offerings on the altar are incensed, the cross is incensed because Christ, the, the whole Mass is Christ offering him, himself to the Father and taking us along for the ride. The altar itself is incensed. A priest friend of mine once said that uh, you give back to God whatever he gave you. If he gave you a beautiful voice, you give it back to him to praise him. If he gave you a lousy voice, you give it back to him to get even. So it's what he gave you. You give it back to him. As a musician, I tell my choirs all the time, I said, you know, God gave us some musical talent and voice. If we just give it back to him the way we got it, that's not good enough. We're asked to give it back to him with increase. That's why musicians must practice. That's why we must do our best at Mass and not just coast through it as musicians, because we, we want to give back to God the best we've got, not the worst we've got. And I, 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 believe me, I know that's very hard for a lot of people to be able to do this. While we're on this one, we've got to fix one little thing. This, this creeps up every, uh, every once in a while, and it's been creeping up the last few months in our parish. Look at these notes on We Lift Them Up. We lift them up to the Lord. I think this, this must have started, I think it started actually before I got here, because when I got here, we were already singing it wrong. But we were saying, we, we lift them up to the Lord, or something like that. But I always say, there are two notes on lift, and you go up on the word up. We lift them up, then we're okay. Let's try that. We lift them up to the Lord, again. We lift them up to the Lord. Now we've got, you are all in the congregation next Sunday. Sing that right, please, and everybody else will sooner or later follow suit. Okay. Then we get into the Eucharistic prayer. The church tells us this is the most important part of the Mass. The Mass is filled with these, you know, if you could make a little a graph of levels of importance in the Mass, it's, it's all over the place. It, the, 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 the introductory rites lead up to the Gospel, 
then there's a little bit of a drop. The homily's still important, they're all important, but then we get to the Eucharistic prayer and we're on one of those peaks again. And the Eucharistic prayer has eight parts. The Eucharistic prayer is a dangerous place. Uh, I've heard it called the black hole of the liturgy. And I am guilty of this so often myself that the Eucharistic prayer starts and I wake up uh, at the great amen and wonder where I've been for the last five minutes. Um, it's really hard for me to stay focused on the Eucharistic prayer. This helps me to know about these eight parts and you know, try to follow along with those. So part one is thanksgiving, which is in what's called the preface. In the, pre the preface is the, priest that the, uh, the prayer that the priest prays right after the dialogue that we just sang. It is right and just. The prefaces contain a pretty good chunk of the Roman Missal. There are lots of prefaces. And the priest has lots of choices. He can choose lots of different prefaces on every given Sunday. Most of them start out with something like this. The first part of the preface is called the protocol. It's basically a transition from that dialogue, but it's filled with thanksgiving. It's saying it is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God. That's the first part of the preface. And th these, these words that I have up here, by the way, they vary. Every preface is going to have slight variations on this. This is one of the prefaces that the priests tend to use more often. Notice, we talked about this last time, liturgical prayer has a certain pattern. It's almost always directed to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Almost always. And this one's no exception. To give you thanks, Lord God, Lord Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, and many prefaces then end, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Second part of the preface is the body. And this is the longest part of the preface. I chose kind of a short one here, just an example. This is one that's called the Common Preface 4. It can be used on any Sunday in ordinary time or weekday. But it's beautiful. It's, it's the popcorn or the soggy cheerio prayer. For although you have no need of our praise, yet our thanksgiving is itself your gift, since our praises add nothing to your greatness, but profit us for salvation through Christ our Lord. You don't need my praise, but I'm offering it anyway. And then the third part, the uh, eschatical, so it comes from the same word as uh, eschatology, uh, eschatology, eschatology, eschaton in Greek is the, is the last, the final things, and log, log, log comes from logos, or the word, so it's basically the last word. Eschatological things are things about God's last word, the day of judgment, the end of time. In this case, eschatical is just simply the conclusion. It's not all that profound. As, but it does tell us, and so, with the company of angels and saints, we sing the hymn of your praise, as without end we acclaim. I guarantee you, every cantor, every pianist, every guitarist, every organist listens for this, because they want to know when to start the Holy Holy. And it's always going to talk about the angels and saints, or just the angels sometimes, 
But that's our cue that we're just getting ready to enter into the Holy Holy. It's beautiful that this particular week we've got our relics of the saints right up here around the altar because this is a reminder, we'll see it coming, it's coming, the best part is coming, of what's really happening in that Eucharistic prayer and, and um, in the Mass itself. So this leads up to, so with a company of angels and saints, we sing the hymn of your praise as without end we acclaim. Let's back up just a little bit. Earlier, the priest said, lift up your hearts, and we said, and that's often how we say it, we lift them up to the Lord. What's really happening there is that the church means that literally. We're lifting up our hearts to the Lord. That up there is the meeting place of heaven and earth. It's like all of a sudden there's this conduit, this sparkling, radiant, swirling conduit of grace between heaven and earth, and we're to be swept up in that. And that's what we are mean when we say, we lift them up to the Lord. So it's a great moment to remember what's really going on there. And again, the Eucharistic prayer is going to prove that this is what, this is, what is happening. We sing together, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is the acclamation that we sing along with the angels and the saints. We might sing it in Latin, we could sing it in French, or in Spanish, or in English, or with guitars, or with violins, or with organ, or whatever, but it's always together with the angels and the saints. Here's where this text comes from. The book of Isaiah, chapter 6. In your handout, by the way, the second page, you've got the entire text there. This, this scripture passage is so important, I wanted you to have the whole thing. This is a passage from the book of Isaiah where it's the call of the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah starts off and says, In the year King Uzziah died, which was sometime in the 8th century B.C., so 800, 750 years before Christ, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne with the train of his garment filling the temple. Seraphim were stationed above. Each of them had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they hovered. One cried out to the other. One angel cries out to the other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is filled with his glory. So that holy, holy that we sing at Mass comes right from the book of Isaiah. What's the context? It's Isaiah's vision of what is going on at the throne of God in heaven right now, all the time. And if you read the rest of that passage, you'll see that it, it, it just goes on. It's not, it's not like it happens, it, it, it continues. Let's read on. At the sound of that cry, the frame of the door shook, and the house was filled with smoke. The incense is rising, and if we sang that holy, holy the way we should, the frame of the house would shake. 
Then I said, Woe is me, I am doomed, for I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. All I've got is a soggy cheerio to offer, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. But then one of the seraphim flew to me, holding an ember which he had taken from to with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth with it, with fire. See, he said, now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed, your sin is purged. And then, remember this passage when it comes to the dismissal at the end of Mass. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am, I said, send me. That's the context of what's happening during the Holy Holy. We're with Isaiah. Now, look at the flip side. That same, that same Holy Holy is quoted in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. This is St. John this time. The vision of St. John the Evangelist. After this, I had a vision of an open door to heaven. The door to heaven. And I heard the trumpet-like voice that had spoken to me before saying, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen afterwards. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. At once I was caught up in the Spirit. A throne was there in heaven, and on the throne sat one whose appearance sparkled like jasper and carnelian. Around the throne was a halo as brilliant as an emerald. Now, this is not a great halo up there, but that's part of the thinking that went into this renovation, that the jewel-like appearance of the sanctuary. Many chalices are encrusted with jewels or have jewel-like things. That's why. It's because it's part of what, uh, what uh, John is describing at the, at the worship of heaven. Surrounding the throne, I, thought tw I saw 24 other thrones on which 24 elders sat, dressed in white garments and with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Seven flaming torches burned in front of the throne. Ironically, we have seven fake candles in front of the altar, so not a perfect... Uh, I just noticed that. Um, but I digress. Um, let's see. Seven flaming torches burned in front of the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In front of the throne that was something that resembled a sea of glass like crystal. Again, that's one of the reasons that when we redid the sanctuary, we did a, a marble in the sanctuary and on the center aisle. It was just regular tile in the rest of the church. That that shines like the, like the streets of heaven. In the center and around the throne, look at that back wall. There were four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back. The first creature resembled a lion. St. Mark has always been associated with the lion. The second was like a calf, St. Luke. The third had a face like a human being, St. Matthew. And the fourth looked like an eagle in flight, St. John. That's where those four ancient images of the four evangelists come from, this passage of the book of Revelation. And there they are, around the throne of God, around the altar. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, were covered with eyes inside and out. But day, or, day and night they do not stop exclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. 
So both in the book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation, that's what's happening when we sing the Holy Holy at Mass. Yes? No. Uh, no. Um, but in many places they are. But that's, that's one of the reasons why we put them there. So, Yes? Yeah. Yeah, and I think I mentioned last time, I may not have, the, the, my son who died of cancer, and I told this story a little bit last time, uh, it was also difficult places in the world for him because there were all these people and all this noise and smells, and, and it just drove him nuts. And at his funeral mass, the great realization for me was this was the first mass he had ever enjoyed. And I was so grateful, and I still am. And I know it's not just m my idea. The church is trying so hard to tell us that what Phyllis said is absolutely right. We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, by the angels and saints that celebrate the Mass with us every single time. One, one thing I teach my children's choir, a, a habit that I've tried to, to uh, stay in, over my years as a church musician, is just before Mass begins, I take a moment, prayer, I look at the back of the church, and I picture Jesus walking in and sitting in the back row. And I try to, and then I take a moment to realize I'm not imagining that. Christ really is here, and he is in the back row, and he's in the front row, and he's on the altar. And what Phyllis just said, that remembering that Christ is... Who, is, who does the liturgy? The liturgy, the church tells us, is the action of Christ, head and members. You bet he's here. And it's uh, so important to, do, to try to remember that. And on, at a 6.30 Mass on a Tuesday morning, that's not easy to remember. You may or may not have ever noticed that on, on the, one of the things we did in the renovation was on the steps leading up to the altar are the words sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. Sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. We're actually we're working with a gold leaf company right now to paint those in gold leaf so that they're more visible. But that's the whole idea, that when we sing holy, 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 we're entering up into that sanctuary, entering into uh, the throne the throne of God entering into heaven to sing with all the angels and saints. The same song they're singing. Everybody knows it. Okay, I've got to move on with the Eucharistic prayer. Right after the Holy Holy, there are lots of different options the priest has for the Eucharistic prayer. There are four main ones, but then there's also two Eucharistic prayers for reconciliation and uh, some other options. I think there are seven altogether that the priest can choose from. Um, what we probably most often hear, Eucharistic Prayer 3, and it is, I think, one of the most beautiful. Eucharistic Prayer 3 tells us you give life to all things and make them holy. You never cease to gather a people to yourself so that from the rising of the sun to its setting, a pure sacrifice may be offered to your name. One of the 
results of the new translation. The old translation used to say, so that from the east to the west, a perfect offering may be made to the, a perfect offering may be made to the glory of your name. The new translation, from the rising of its sun to its setting. I think that some people thought, well, why, isn't that just east to west? Why change it? But it's more powerful this way. From the rising of, its, of the sun to its setting just, doesn't just imply from east to west. It also implies time from the beginning of the day until the end of the day. So for all time and all place, that a pure sacrifice may be offered to your name. Now keep that in mind, the pure sacrifice. Because we think we've already done the offertory, but there's a second offertory coming up. Part three of the Eucharistic prayer is called the Epiclesis. By the way, I got on Google Images today and typed in Epiclesis Catholic Mass. First picture that came up, came up is Father Chris Shockley at Our Lady of Mount Carmel. On Google. So, there he is. It's our old tabernacle in the background. So the Epiclesis is every server, the right girls know this, what do you look at? Yeah. Annabelle's back there, or is that Cecilia or Annabelle? Cecilia, okay. So Cecilia, as soon as she sees the priest put his hand over the chalice, she knows to ring the bell. The epiclesis is when the priest calls down the power of the Holy Spirit upon these gifts. Therefore, O Lord, we humbly implore you by the same Spirit, graciously make holy these gifts we have brought to you for consecration. Um, Father Christopher Roberts used to talk about this as a moment that when you have brought your intention to Mass, what you're praying for at the Mass, that the ringing of the bell, this is right when we started ringing the bells at Our Lady, and he said, use that ringing of the bell to remind you what your intention was at that Mass. I have found that so beautiful when I space out during the Eucharistic prayer and I hear that bell ring and then I remember, okay, this is my intention for this Mass. And I'm Make holy these gifts we have brought to you. Remember, it's not just the bread and wine that are being made holy. It's those intentions that we have placed upon that altar. That they may become the body and it's us on that altar. That they may become the body and blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at whose command we celebrate these mysteries. Remember that mystery is that concrete something that we bump up, bump up against and encounter the divine. The bread and wine are, be, are going to become the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, but the priest is saying, we're on that altar too. We're supposed to become the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church really wants us to do that. Not us to do it, God to do it to us, with us. Part four of the Eucharistic prayer, the institution, narrative, and the consecration. So now's the storytelling. He shares the story. For on the night he was betrayed, he himself took bread. He says the words of consecration. Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body which will be given up for you. And then the consecration of the chalice. Um, I want to focus on the last part of that. Do this in memory of me. Two important questions to ask are, what is this? Do this. This what? Well, it means several things. 
It means celebrate the Mass. It means receive communion, consume the body and blood of Christ. But it also means do this is that. Give yourself, give all of yourself in memory of me. We're called to do that too. We're called to be broken and poured out for one another. That's why people work at the food pantry. That's why people work at the clinic. That's why people uh, go and visit the sick or take communion to the sick. They are answering that call to be broken and poured out for one another. And then what is memory? A lot of times we fall into a trap, and I've, I've heard this said so many times, that when we celebrate Mass, we're going back to Calvary on Good Friday. We're going back there and reenacting Good Friday. But that's not really what remembrance means in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Remembrance means making something, from, making something present now. It doesn't mean going back in time. It means making the, something that happened some time ago present and real right now. And that's what's happening on the altar. Yes, the sacrifice of Christ is being made present, but it's not like we're going back in time. That's why, by the way, some people have said, why don't we do a Christmas pageant on Christmas Eve during Mass? Why don't we have the kids get up and do a Christmas play? during Mass. The reason we don't do that as Catholics, the liturgy says we should not do that, because it's not a reenactment. It's not a dramatic presentation. The, a sacrament affects what it signifies, so it makes Christ present here and now. It's not going back and reenacting the Nativity. So it's one of the reasons it works that way. Some people think Catholic liturgy is no fun because of that. Why can't we do this, or why can't we do that? Well, because what's happening is this, and that's the theme of every Mass, is that uh, dying and rising and ascending and being poured out for others. Then we come to part five of the Eucharistic prayer, in Greek called the anamnesis. This is the, the, the remembering, the, the mystery of faith. This is one of the few times in the Mass if you'll notice, well, they have three options for, the, for the, the mystery of faith. I always think it's interesting. We've got all these words in the liturgy, an entire Bible worth of Scripture, 2,000 years of Catholic history, and at Mass the priest just says, the mystery of faith. So we're going to take all of those thousands of years of Judeo-Christian history and put it in one little package, wrap a bow on it, and say, this is the mystery of faith. And there it is. We proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. It's often said that the only theme of Mass is what's called the Paschal Mystery. It's Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and coming in glory. And that's what we're called to participate in. That's what we're called to be part of. The second option we have, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again. Again, the death, resurrection, ascension, and coming again. Oops, and the last one, save us, Savior of the world, for by your cross and resurrection you have set us free. Again, the emphasis of cross, resurrection. This one doesn't explicitly say about coming again, 
but the other two do. What? Um, not officially, but for instance, with Advent coming up, we will. I think in Advent we're going to use this one because of the emphasis on His coming again. But we could just as easily use this one until you come again. But the third one doesn't refer to the coming again, so we. So we've just elected not to use that one during Advent. So. One thing that's interesting about these three prayers, who are they addressed to? To Jesus. Specifically to Jesus. It's very rare in the liturgy. All three of them. Which is one of the reasons, by the way, in the old translation, you remember Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. One of the reasons it was dropped is because that was never in the Latin and it's not addressed to Christ. It's just kind of like a statement instead of a direct proclamation of the mystery of faith addressed to the Savior. We could have said maybe, you, are, you have died, you have risen, I don't know. But it was dropped. Then, this is, this is one, of the most, uh, one of the most important of the most important parts of the Mass, after that mystery of faith, again, a lot of times we think, oh, whew, the big part is over. Now we can kind of relax and think about what I'm going to make for dinner when I get home until we get to the great amen. But this is the next part right after the mystery of faith is what's called the oblation, the sacrifice, the offering. Liturgists will call this the second offertory. In the text of the Eucharistic prayer, this is a long one, so I didn't put it all on the slide and I didn't give it to you, but here's the offering. Oh, I thought for sure I put... Here we go. Oh. Therefore, O Lord, as we celebrate the memorial of the saving passion of your Son, his wondrous resurrection and ascension into heaven, and as we look forward to his second coming... Passion, resurrection, ascension, second coming. We offer you in we offer you in thanksgiving this holy and living sacrifice. Is that the now consecrated body and blood of Christ on the altar? Absolutely. Is it all of us too? Absolutely. We're part of what's being offered, and we can be offered now because we're joined to the offering of Christ. Look, we pray, upon the oblation of your church and recognizing the sacrificial victim by whose death you will to reconcile us to yourself, grant that we, who are nourished by the body and blood of your Son and filled with his Holy Spirit, may become one body, one spirit in Christ. May we be made like Christ. I really like in there look upon the oblation of your church, look upon our offering, but then it says, and recognizing the sacrificial victim. So look upon my offering, but don't recognize me in that offering. Recognize Christ in that offering. Christ is my proxy. Don't look at the things I've messed up on. My sacrifice is now made perfect only because Christ is the one that's offering it. May he, may Jesus, make of us May he make of us an eternal offering to you, so that we may obtain the inheritance with your elect, especially with the most blessed Mary Virgin, 
St. Joseph, the blessed apostles and glorious martyrs, and all the saints. We're still celebrating with all the saints. So that's the, the second offertory. That's when we are being offered to the Father along with Christ. In the general instruction of the Roman Missal, it's often called the germ, the general instruction of the Roman Missal is sort of the how-to book of the Mass. In every Roman Missal, it's about, it's the very first part of the book. All of it is in there. It sort of tells us what to do and not do at Mass. This is what it says about this part of the Eucharistic prayer, the oblation. By which in this very memorial, the church, in particular, those gathered here and now, offers the unblemished sacrificial victim in the Holy, in the Holy Spirit to the Father. The church's intention, indeed, is that the faithful not only offer this unblemished sacrificial victim, but also learn to offer their very selves. And so, day by day, to be brought through the mediation of Christ into unity with God and with each other, so that God may be at last all in all. Is, is the Eucharist, is Mass about being one with God or being one with one another? Well, it says both and. It says into unity with God and with each other, so that all of us may become the body of Christ. I'm not making this stuff up. The Catechism echoes this. In the Eucharistic sacrifice, the whole of creation, this even widens the circle. It's not just us, it's all of creation. The whole cosmos is uh, loved by God, is presented to the Father through the death and resurrection of Christ. Pope Benedict wrote about this a lot, that it's, in the Mass, it's the whole of creation that's being offered up to God. Then, the Eucharistic prayer goes on, part seven, the intercessions. These kind of fly by quickly, saying that the, the Eucharist is celebrated with the whole church in heaven and on earth, with all the saints and angels, and with folks in North Korea that are hiding out and, and celebrating Mass somewhere, that we are celebrating with all of those. And the offering, the oblation, is made for all of her members, living and dead. Every Mass we pray for the poor souls. We pray for peace and salvation of the world. We intercede for the Pope, bishops, and clergy. And we pray that God may eventually gather all to himself. If you listen to the Eucharistic prayer this Sunday, you'll hear all those prayers in there. And finally, the doxology. So the doxology is the closing prayer. It's always Trinitarian, and it always lifts everything. Notice again, this is addressed to God, through him, with him, and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. Amen. This is one of the amens that they say, the authorities. Everybody at Mass is, should be saying this amen or singing this amen. Because you're that whole big long prayer that came before, you're saying, yeah, what he said. The priest is offering that prayer on behalf of all of us. We can't all say it with him. But now it's our, our, our opportunity to affirm all that came before. So that's huge. The other amen, of course, that you must say is when you receive communion. So that you're responding, yes, I believe it. And that's what you're saying here. Yes, I believe everything you just said. So finally, we get to the communion rite. 
We pray the Lord's Prayer together. I think I mentioned last time, this is, has, for 21 years, has been one of my favorite moments in Mass at Our Lady of Mount Carmel, because there is nothing, nothing, that is sung better at Our Lady of Mount Carmel than the Lord's Prayer each and every Sunday when we sing it. Um, someone asked me a few years ago, why don't we learn a new musical setting of the Lord's Prayer? And I'm like, I'm not going to touch the Lord's Prayer. It's awesome the way we sing it. And it, I would be, it would be foolish to try to fix what ain't broken. Um, and that's the way the church intends it. The church intends that, it, by the way, the church does say the Lord's Prayer may not be sung as a solo at Mass. It may not be sung by the choir alone at Mass. There are plenty of other things that the choir is allowed to sing alone at Mass, but not the Lord's Prayer. That belongs to all of us. Then there's the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. The kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours. The invitation and sign of peace. The sign of peace itself is optional. What the Missal says is, if appropriate, the priest or deacon may invite the people, uh, the assembly to share a sign of peace with one another. That's why during cold and flu season, when we omit the sign of peace, we're not breaking any liturgical rule. It is an option. It's a beautiful option. He does not, uh, he does not discourage it. He actually encourages us to, how does it say it? He, he uh, encourages us to be sensible about uh, physical contact during cold and flu season. <laughs> about... Well, I mean, we've done it as long as I've been here. I, I'm sure it probably predated me. Oh, oh no, that was added. That was added in the Novus Ordo. Yeah, in the new, in the Vatican II liturgy, that was added. Yes, there was considerable discussion, by the way, when the new missal was was redone. Should the sign of peace? Actually, Pope Benedict, I think, uh, encouraged this that the sign of peace be moved to before the preparation of gifts because of the scriptural passage that says, before you offer your gift at the altar, make peace with your brother. That was very seriously considered. In the end, they did, did not make that move. But I was kind of like, oh, that would have been neat. But you win a few, you lose a few. Um, then the fraction right. This, uh, I'll delve into the sanctuary here. The priest will often go to the tabernacle, take the reserved hosts out of the tabernacle. By the way, ideally, the hardcore liturgists say there should only be a, enough hosts left in the tabernacle to take communion to the sick. And ideally, at every Mass, all the hosts that are distributed to the faithful should be hosts that were uh, consecrated at that Mass. That's a great idea. It's really tough to do to try to estimate how many hosts we need at each and every Mass. So maybe in heaven it'll be like that. But down here on earth we have to make sure we've got enough hosts to take to the sick. Hey, Rex. Yes? Yeah, for people that don't know, you see the Eucharist minister and the usher walking around church in the middle of this, is to count to see how many people are actually here and to make sure that that's what you got. Right. Yeah, we try to we try to estimate, but it's 
Of course, you see a lot of people, you don't know how many are actually going to receive communion. So we're, we're always guessing. I remember in my home parish, the first time after Vatican II, when the cup, when it was uh, allowed to offer the precious blood to the congregation, it was my little, my little uh, country parish church, and Father Krueger, God rest his soul, consecrated three huge chalices of wine, and nobody received the precious blood. So there he was with three enormous chalices of wine, all to himself. So, yes. Because, because of this, I was just listening to a podcast about this the other day. Uh, there. By which, in this very memorial, the church, and particularly that gathered here and now, so that at this Mass, it's those that are gathered here and now making that oblation and therefore partaking of the sacrifice. Now, that does happen. What's the one mass where that does happen? Where all the hosts are fresh. Yeah, even Good Friday, they all get consecrated on Holy Thursday. Idea, well, actually, we probably still have some left over after Good Friday. But at Easter Vigil, at the Easter Vigil, ideally we don't have any hosts left at all. And, I mean, we, we, can, we can do a whole other evening on church art and architecture, but the church does say that the tabernacle, the, the, the purpose of the tabernacle is a place of reposition, not necessarily a place of adoration. Yeah, that's not my idea. That's the church's teaching. So um, that's why we have an adoration chapel for perpetual adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. I, I'm like you, Janine. I, I prefer, really, when the church is quiet and empty, I prefer to come in here and adore rather than go in the chapel where there's other people. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there is always a, cha a place of reservation. So I'd say St. Elizabeth Seton, where the tabernacle is not in the sanctuary, there's certainly always hosts being reserved because we always have to have uh, hosts available to take to the sick. Okay. We're almost done here. Communion procession. We're getting into the communion rite. Okay. The priest lifts the host. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. That is taken from two places. One is St. John the Baptist. When Jesus comes to be baptized at the River Jordan, the dove comes and rests on him, and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. Here he is. And then in the book of Revelation, blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb, right toward the end of the book of Revelation. It's the wedding banquet of the Lamb, chapter 21 of Revelation, and that's where that comes from. Yep. Okay, I was going to do that, and then I thought, oh, I'm running out of time. So the fraction... The, the priest breaks the host for two purposes. One is you know, symbolic of uh, um, the breaking of the body of Christ, 
but it's for the practical purpose also of breaking that small, that large host into small hosts that can be shared. Ideally, we would have one enormous host for the entire congregation, and all those pieces would be broken off that one host. That'd be the ideal. As one man said to me one time, with the little round, flat hosts that we have, he said, I don't have trouble believing it's the body of Christ. I have trouble believing it's bread. So, but the commingling, the, after he breaks the host, the priest breaks off a tiny little corner of the host and drops it into the chalice and says a very beautiful prayer. It's, again, one of those secret prayers that we never hear. He says... May the mingling of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ bring eternal life to us who receive it. I was just reading a commentary on this yesterday, and this was saying that often uh, the image is, is said that, well, this is kind of symbolic of, the, of Christ's body and blood being rejoined again mystically at the end of time or in new life. And they say, that's not really what's going on there. It's really a prayer about that sacrum commercium we talked about earlier, that sacred exchange of Christ becoming man so that we might become like Christ. And the priest's prayer there, again, may this mingling of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ bring eternal life to us who receive it. May I, I, I be made like Christ. May we be made like Christ. So that's all I know about that. Okay, our response, this is what we talked about last time, almost all the prayers at Mass are plural. We pray communally. It's we, 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 with three exceptions. I confess to Almighty God, to you, my brothers and sisters. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. And this one, let's say it together. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. First part of that is taken from Luke's gospel, the centurion who with the uh, servant who is sick and dying at home and he comes to Christ and, and Christ is going to go to his house and he says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Say the word and my servant will be healed. And we make a slight change on that, that my soul shall be healed. There was some concern in the new translation that by restoring that language of come under my roof that people would think that talking about the host sticking to the roof of one's mouth. I don't know of anybody that's misunderstood that in that way. So, I love this old, this old Franco Zeffirelli series, by the way, Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know how many people are familiar with that. I've still got that on DVD. It's such a, I love that. But this is the centurion coming to Jesus. Communion procession. Note the order of what happens. The priest consumes first. The priest, then the Eucharist is handed from the priest to the deacon, if there is a deacon, and then to the extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. All of you who are EMHCs know that you don't approach the altar until after the priest is received, right? So it's this progression. The Eucharist comes to us from Christ, from God, through the priest in the person of Christ, and then to the faithful. So the Eucharistic ministers will never go up and take the Eucharist off the altar. The priest will get, hand the Eucharist to them. We, we, in, 
in the Catholic Church, we never say, I'm going to take communion. We say, we receive communion. We don't reach out and grab it. We receive it. Because it's a gift, a complete, total gift from God to us through the priest, through the hands of the priest. And then the extraordinary, the min ex extraordinary ministers then, in turn, pass the Eucharist on to us. Communion is always received. It's not taken. That's why we don't, there's no Catholic church, at least not one that's doing it right, that passes around these little communion plates that people take a piece off of. Because then you're taking it. You're not receiving it. Yes? You asked me that question by email, didn't you? I, I actually, yeah. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I sent you an email this morning, I think. I said, I've been looking for this and looking for this answer, and I can't find it anywhere. In that whole stack of books I've got over there, I couldn't find it. So Mike's question was, the priest genuflects after he consecrates the host, he genuflects after he consecrates the chalice, and then he genuflects again right before the elevation when he says, this is the Lamb of God. I can't find anything specific on why that third genuflection. I think it must be that before he's going to receive the body and blood and pass it on to everyone else, that he genuflects in adoration again simply out of the sacredness of the moment. But that's, that's a guess. I don't like guessing. I like documentation. But This is interesting. People say, why do you start playing right while the, priest, while the priest is still receiving communion? Because the sacred books tell us we should. The, the Roman Missal says, point blank, communion, the communion chant is begun while the priest is receiving the body of Christ. Now, we st usually start instrumentally, and that, because it's, it just practically it's almost impossible to start the song that fast after the Lamb of God. You've got the pianist over there trying to get one book down and the other one up without dropping the books on the keys. And so it, it's, but that's why we start the music so soon. The purposes of the communion song. A lot of times people, you know, they want, want a song that's me and Jesus, me and Jesus, me and Jesus, me and Jesus at communion. I understand that, but this is what the church says. The purposes of the communion chant are to first express the spiritual union of the communicants. It goes on to say, by the unity of their voices. So we're all supposed to be singing the communion song. And none of us, very few of us, want to do that. We want to have that me and Jesus time and just, just want to close my ears. Maybe that's my sinful nature. I want that too, believe me. But the church says, no, that's not what's going on. We're the song is to express our unity and to show gladness of heart. It's not supposed to be morose, and it should bring out the communitarian character of the procession. So, again, this is the mind of the church, not my idea. Then, the third of the presidential prayers, after communion. We're almost to the end now. So the prayer after communion, we come back, but by the way, we have a period of silence. We try to keep 50 to 60 seconds of pure silence after the tabernacle doors closed. That's what the musicians have been instructed to do. That's what the priests have, been, have requested. It doesn't always work out that way. If we're at 11 o'clock mass and it's 12.05 and we know we got people breathing down our necks to get into the parking lot, the priest might skip that moment of silence and go right on or the musicians might start after 20 seconds instead of 50. So, but ideally, we're trying to leave some silence in there. 
Some people ask, why do we sing a song after communion? I respond, because the Missal says so. In the Missal, there is no such thing as a recessional song. It is never mentioned. It doesn't say not to do it, but there's no mention of it at all. But it does say, if there is a song to be after communion, it is to be sung by everyone. So we abolished many years ago at Our Lady Mount Carmel the idea of the, quote, communion meditation, where, you know, the band is going to do a song for us to listen to now. The missile, it doesn't exist in the missile. And a matter, of, a matter of fact, the missile says, if there's a song then, everybody's got to sing it. So that's why we do it the way we do. Then, the priest, we all rise, let us pray, and the priest says, and this, this one is taken from the Solemnity of Christ the King. We started the evening with the first prayer of the liturgical year, and we end with the last prayer of the liturgical year. Having received the food of immortality, we ask, O Lord, that glorying in obedience to the commands of Christ, the King of the universe, we may live with him eternally in his heavenly kingdom, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Often, this prayer after communion is a prayer of action, not reflection. It's like saying, okay, we've just received the body of Christ, now help us go out there and get them. And this is kind of what's happening here. That glorying in the obedience to the commands of Christ. What's the command of Christ? To love one another as I have loved you. To go out and live that love that we've just celebrated. So the prayer after communion is kind of like uh, praying for the, the, the courage to go out and do what needs to be done. Then come the concluding rites. The Missal does say that if there are announcements, this is the place to do them. Why do we do the announcements there at Our Lady Mount Carmel? Because that's where the Missal tells us to do them. I think, this is just my idea, I can't find any documentation for this, I think that this is because this is telling, telling us Okay, we've just celebrated the Eucharist. Now here are some things you can go out and do this week to live what you've just celebrated. We're having a green bag Sunday. Go and fill up the, fill up the food pantry. The scouts are selling advent wreaths. There's a car wash across the street. Things that we can do to, to be of service in the community. Go march at uh, Planned Parenthood. I mean, there's all, those, those are the kind of announcements. It's like, okay, these are, are things we can do this week. And then comes the blessing. The priest blesses us to go out, and then finally, the dismissal. In the Latin missal, the dismissal is ite misa est, which is where the whole word mass comes from, is misa est. It's the same word that is the root of mission and missionary and dismissal. So we're to go out and fulfill the mission. Interestingly, what ite misa est really means, ite means go, Go. That's why, that's, why the, that's why the missile doesn't mention a closing song. Because it's just told us to go, and then the cantor gets up and says, now stay and sing this. So we're delaying us to go out and, 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 and go do something. Ite misa est really means go, it has been sent. What has been sent? It's the Eucharist. Because the extraordinary ministers who are taking communion to the sick have come up with their picks and have received... And really, in, if we did the option of doing this, there is a, a short rite that can send the extraordinary ministers out to take communion to the sick before the rest of us leave. So in other words, the body of Christ has already been sent out. Now you go. 
and follow the body of Christ. So that's what ite misa est really means. In English, the closest one to that Latin is go forth, the mass is ended. Priest can choose any of these options. Father Hurley really likes go and announce the gospel of the Lord. It's our marching orders. Pope Benedict himself wrote the third one because he wanted to really draw the connection between what we've just celebrated and going out and living it. Go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life. Or just simply, go in peace. So the priest has all of those options. And we all respond. So, I would like to leave you with a closing thought, and then if anybody has questions, I'd be happy to stick around and, and answer those. But this is from the Catechism quoting St. Augustine. And I think it really sums up, hopefully, what, what we've learned about the Mass through these two sessions. St. Augustine says, if you are, this is from a, a sermon of St. Augustine's, if you are the body and members of Christ, then it is your sacrament that is placed on the table of the Lord. It is your sacrament that you receive. To that which you are, you respond, Amen. Yes, it is true. And by responding to it, you assent to it. For you hear the words, the body of Christ, and respond, Amen. Be then a member of the body of Christ, that your Amen may be true. Thank you very, very much for being here, and I hope this Sunday that something... Uh, is new to you at Mass, and that the Holy Spirit will work the Holy Spirit's magic through each and every one of you. Thanks very much. <laughs>